I have two hours worth of things to say and 50 broadcast minutes to say it, including the very unfortunate Matt Chandler story that maybe two dozen of you sent me. I'll start there on this week's Corey Truax Show. If you haven't heard the story, don't panic. We haven't lost Chandler, but there is something to report there as all of you, like a lot of you sent it to me. Apparently, I've got a bit of a, a reputation for being a Matt Chandler and Tim Keller fan. And so when there's news about them, a lot of you clue me in about uh, and about that. I am quite grateful. Welcome to the Corey Act Show, wherever you listen to podcasts and right here on his radio talk. Glad to have you with us. Amongst other things, I get deserved the people of Beachwood Church as their pastor for teaching. And we meet at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. Would love to have you any given Sunday morning. I told you at the top, my prep sheet is, it's very genuinely two hours worth of material. We will obviously not get to all of it. Let's get started quickly with, I think, three stories in our opening segment that I think I will tie together at the end with a little bit of skill here on the Corey Truax Show, where we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk. Here are the facts. The pastor of the Village Church down in Dallas, Texas, actually, technically, Flower Mound, Texas, one of the most prominent and most easily recognizable people in all of American Christianity, Matt Chandler, recently announced that he would be going on a, they called it a disciplinary and developmental, both of those words, it's a disciplinary and developmental leave of absence. The purpose for that is, I think, appropriately vague, not all the details of every given scandal or or indiscretion or, for that matter, sin, if, if that's what we're dealing with. Not all the details do we deserve. The details we do have is that on a Sunday morning months ago, a woman came up to Matt Chandler after church and said, the way that you're using direct messaging, the way you're DMing a woman in your church, I think it's inappropriate. The... Folks at the village, including Matt Chandler's wife, who was apparently brought in on it immediately, they all confirm the messages were not sexual, the messages were not romantic. If, if, if either one of those were true, we'd have a whole different ballgame on our hands, and we even talk about the disqualifying nature, potentially, of, uh, of, of conduct that's well below reproach when it comes to a uh, gentleman actually hear me saying this. If you are a married man and you are di- direct messaging romantically or flirting at all with any woman that is not your wife on the internet, uh, you have a major problem. You're in danger and you need to stop right now. No cutesy little reactions to on these direct messaging apps. Stop watching the social media stories of women to whom you're, uh, to whom you are attracted, like all of it. Just qu- quit it. Be be careful with all that. But uh, apparently it was just, here's the words they use, the messages Chandler was sending to this woman were too frequent and too familiar. Too frequent and too familiar. And uh, that that's hard to put a definition on. I know this. If I were messaging with regularity... A woman who's not my wife, as I'm about to have a wife in 60, or now by the time you listen to this, it'll be less than 60 days. I know she wouldn't like it, and I know I would not be a fan of it the other direction, and I wouldn't be a fan of it just myself. Just not a good look. 
to have a, a long, ongoing conversation with another woman on the internet that's not your wife. It's it's weird. It's, I think I can at least say that. And when I say when they say familiar, I suspect that to be knowing Chandler at the superficial level. That's some jokes or some memes that are probably not best shared by the pastor of one of the most prominent churches in the country, or for that matter, any pastor at all. So those are the facts of the case, and he will be back. They they left it wide open on how long this disciplinary and developmental action would be, but he'll be back in full restoration is how it seems. He said he's in glad submission to his elders, and that's how you're supposed to handle those things. So just two worthwhile takeaways, I think. One is, this is how it's supposed to work with megachurch pastors. At the smallest of, well, for any pastor, at the smallest of things, let's be careful. Sin is serious. It, the the enemy is roaring about to see who he might devour. It is it, sin is sneaky. So uh, let's let's always be careful. There should be accountability. There should be a, an accountability structure for a guy of that prominence. We see way too often that men of that level of prominence. There's no one to hold them accountable. I've covered that on the show before with lots of different pastors, usually from charismatic and Church of God and Pentecostal backgrounds or non-denominational backgrounds that have polity, they have church governance, where the big personality in the room gets to do whatever he wants. And there's very few people, if anyone, to hold him accountable. For that matter, that incredible podcast, well, it started strong, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that Christianity Today uh, produced, tells that story of what happens when one big, powerful personality has no one to hold him accountable. We're seeing modeled for us in the church what it's like to hold someone accountable for behavior that's unbecoming of ministry and unbecoming of leadership. That's one worthwhile takeaway. Second, there's also a worthwhile warning. And I think I've already given it. We, we got to be careful, gentlemen and, and ladies. Just hear that. Let's be people whose internet behavior is so above reproach that this could never be said of us. That the messages we send, the people with whom we're messaging, the frequency thereof, especially if you're married, let it, let it never be at the level that it could make someone think, man, I need to call that person out. I need to take that first step of church discipline and one-to-one say, hey, I think you're going overboard here. I think you're, you're bordering on something dangerous and I'm calling you back from the precipice. It's a worthwhile warning that can happen to all of us. Because, listen, Chandler, is I think he's one of the good ones. He's a guy who guards his heart. It, I think that's really one of the big emotions I had. I was disappointed, but I also had a fear. Lord, keep me from doing anything like that. Keep me from doing anything where I would need to step away from ministry for a time and asking the question, how would that affect my nephews, young men in the church, the people that have some kind of, I hate the word admiration, but some kind of respect for me. I don't want to damage that, not for just my own reputation, but because I, in ministry, I reflect on what the Lord's called us to. So that's a good worthwhile warning. Careful with what you're doing on the internet. You're listening to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I have two other stories for you that I think I will connect back to that opening story here in the first segment. So we have the Matt Chandler let's call it controversy, Two. I saw a story in the New York Times, I, I read a lot of the New York Times, about uh, the title, I believe, was something about the con- 
in Connecticut, I'll just pull it up. Town after town, residents are, the word is, residents are fighting affordable housing in Connecticut. And what the story details is in fairly posh and higher upper crust neighborhoods, there are petitions and legal funds being donated to by residents to oppose the building of affordable housing. Sometimes not just affordable housing as in Section 8 housing where the government is paying for it, but there are very high-end neighborhoods that are filing lawsuits against developers who are just trying to build multi-unit apartment complexes. So you got this neighborhood, and the next plot over, the next road over, someone wants to build a giant apartment complex that will be for that'll be for people who uh, who can't afford to buy houses in the area, and they're opposing it. And ultimately, and I know this is a little bit of a political cheap shot, but if you know anything about Connecticut, and if you read the story, what's really happened here is white, high-income liberals don't want to live close to the holy hoi polloi. Actually, this is all crystallizing for me. I think I just came up with a clever way to say that. The hoity-toity don't want to live close to the hoi polloi. If you don't know that term, it's the Greek. It just means the masses. So the very fancy people don't want to live close to the not fancy people, the the common folk. And it, I'm kind of proud of the New York Times for calling these folks out. I mean, that the solution to our housing problem, housing costs so much, is we need to build more housing. If we can build a house, great. If you can build duplexes, do that. Apartments, I'm in. Duplexes, yes, all of it. Build all of it. Build all of the domiciles you can build for people in which to live. And as supply goes up, it'll start to meet meet demand and our prices will, uh, will normalize. And they're fighting to the nail to keep more houses from being built, more housing units being built, just because they don't want to live close to those folks. And I found a, a pretty obvious Christian worldview component to that story. You know, there's a group of folks that talk about affordable housing with some regularity, and I would not include them on the groups that typically include Christians in the country. Because their, their, their thing tends to be, I want to take control of some government somewhere, my federal government, state, county, whatever it is, and I want to make people do some stuff I want to do. I want to use force to make people behave like I want but I think this needs to be true of, of the Christian when we talk about housing. We are for affordable housing. We are. We may not be for the government doing rent control, and we're, and we're not. That's horrific economics. There's a great chapter in that, uh, in Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. If you haven't read that, I can't recommend it to you high, more highly or highly enough. Uh, rent controls are bad for everybody. They're Just to give you one example, when the government comes in and has a rent control policy giving a maximum what a landlord can charge, you see a grinding to a halt the building of new housing. Because those with the capital to build or the banks who have the money to lend, if they know there's a price control, then it's a terrible investment to build units because they know they can't make their investment back or it's going to take forever to make their investment back. And so they stay out altogether. And so, yeah, I would say even part of the Christian worldview is we're for affordable housing. And one thing we know that breaks affordable housing is rent controls. But for our own behavior, where folks try to fight the market from fixing it, it is, I think, for the Christian, I can't bind anyone's conscience here, but I think for the Christian, we would say, yeah, I'm for that. I mean, I'm, I'm wise, 
I have my own family. We have our own property. We want to protect that. But generally, if someone wants to build an apartment complex close to where I live, it needs to not be our response to go, well, who's moving into my neighborhood? I, said, I, I know we've built that into a lot of us. There's a, a natural skepticism we feel good about. We feel good about being skeptical because we tell ourselves we're protecting our families or something. And there's good, there are some good instincts in that. I just don't, I don't think that's what we're called to. If you disagree with me, you can find me on social media, email. That our, our natural inclination should be to welcome in. And so we're for affordable housing and the market creating it. Now, final story of the first segment. These are just three things I saw I wanted to respond to and I'm going to tie them, tie them together. So I got the Matt Chandler story. I got these white upper crust liberals that are trying to stop affordable housing from happening and Christians needing to be for affordable housing. And then I saw this. Life expectancy in the U.S. dropped again. Of course it did during COVID. We had some deaths that we didn't expect to get, and so our life expectancy went down. But it's gone down again, and we got to talk about why. It's it's certainly, well, some more COVID stuff, but we're, we're finding heart disease, chronic liver disease, cirrhosis, and suicide were the other contributing factors. So heart disease, a people eating itself and slothing itself into sickness, liver disease or cirrhosis, a people drinking themselves and drugging themselves out of existence, and suicide, a people so broken emotionally, so devastated, so lacking meaning, that a major factor in our suicide in our, our life expectancy is a growing number of people killing themselves. I even saw while reading that story that at Fort Bragg, so the I think that's our largest military installment. It's up in North Carolina, uh, a little bit south of Raleigh, I think. The number one cause of death at Fort Bragg is uh, uh, overdoses, like meth overdoses or, or the drugs related to methamphetamine. And then there, it's, it's suicide, alcohol-related deaths. Those are the three. And then some of those suicides, you don't know that they were accidental overdoses. Maybe they were on purpose. But around a military base, the most common ways to die are just trying to feel something through drugs, abusing or misusing drugs, or numbing it all through alcohol and then the accidents that come along with it. And so how do I tie all these together? I see those two stories about a country, or at least a, you know, a state there in Connecticut, in need of affordable housing. I see a people so nihilistic and lacking of meaning, we are eating, slothing, drugging, drinking, and killing ourselves into utter uh, annihilation. It's a little dramatic, but stick with me. Man, does this country need the church and need for it to be healthy. Man, does this country need a church of men who behave properly on the internet that live above reproach, with honor, and hold each other accountable. We have massive problems here. And we only have so much 
influence, and only so much of it is the responsibility of the church, but we are also a group of people who are called to influence. So we can influence policy on these things, like on housing and all the stuff that's killing us. So that's my last call to you. I don't think we're going to fix all that through the current government we have. I think we're going to need the, the right people that are getting involved in the right ways. Some of that's government, some of that's policy making. A lot of it's just activism and doing good for your neighbor. It's being a great influence. It's being a good church member. It's serving your community. So I give you those problems to say, we need a healthy church. And if you're not part of one, you need to get in there. We got work to do. If you're in the area and you're not part of one, Beachwood Church, you can meet, meet us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're easy to find. Beachwood, I think it's beachwood.cc. You can also just get in touch with me and I'll get you details. When we return, I want to talk education because the New York Times did uh, a series of videos with history teachers. I watched it all with them talking about what they teach about race and critical race theory they also ask the question, what is the point of education? What are we trying to do? I want to talk about both of those and hopefully a lot more when you return for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on His Radio Talk and wherever you find podcasts. I know some of you might resent me saying so, but the New York Times actually does some important work. It is often skewed in a direction opposite my own, but they do some... Good work. They should. They're a billion-dollar enterprise. They have all kinds of resources to do excellent work. I'm going to tell you about some of that excellent work they did in education and then respond to it here in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you listen to podcasts and on his radio talk. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for my weird name. You will find me there. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I promise those of you who have written to my Gmail. I'm trying to get there, guys. Trying to get to a spot. Maybe I can do a, a bonus episode just responding to listener submissions. And I'll try to get there here soon. All right, let's do this thing. So I got very interested because the New York Times headline was, we talked to dozens of history teachers. Here's what they're actually teaching about race in uh, race and slavery and critical race theory in the classroom. And I'll admit, my... Um, uh, I can't say that on the air. My, let's go with radar or something like that. My instinct to know, well, I probably know where they're coming from here and what they're trying to say. There's going to be a bias here trying to say it's, there's no such thing. Critical race theory is only taught in the colleges and it's a graduate level thing and no one has anything to worry about. That's a little of what they were doing, but I was interested in hearing what they had to say. Here's a couple takeaways uh, it's it's long, by the way. If you Google it, I think I think it's in front of the paywall. I'm a New York Times subscriber, so I, I pay the $4 a month to get access to everything they do. But it's, a, it's an interesting set of videos from quite a few history teachers. Here's a couple things I noticed when they actually started getting into content. Because some of the conversation was about philosophy. Why do we do education? What's, what's the purpose? Uh, the, the laws that states are passing about uh, how we teach gender and race and all that. They got a lot of commentary on that. Most of it is left of center commentary, as you might expect. Fine, whatever. But when they got into the nitty-gritty, like, what are you teaching about certain things? I had some thoughts. One, they asked them, what do you teach about the founding fathers of the country? Washington, Jefferson, all those. For the most part, I was 
I was okay with it. They said they teach them as complicated. They teach Jefferson as complicated, a guy who was ahead of his time, who was an abolitionist, and an abolitionist who owned slaves. What a weird guy. Now, I, I wish they would have gotten more detail, and they got fairly detailed in the conversation, so I think if they taught this, it would come up, that they would even maybe give some reasoning. Did you know in Virginia, where, they, where he lived, it was illegal to release your slaves? You couldn't even do it at your own death? You had to bequeath slaves to someone else? That's, of course, egregious and terrible law, but that does give you some explanation to, to formulate or to reconcile the two things in your head. That is Jefferson a hypocrite? Sure, I'm sure in some ways. But the idea that he was a slave owner and an abolitionist is not by nature hypocritical or in conflict because he lived in a state that would have punished him for breaking the law had he lived by his own standard. They, I, I'm, I'm generally okay with teaching the founders as complicated, especially in our common conception of morality the modern-day conception of morality. Now, I also, want to, I also do want to teach them as extraordinary. They are extraordinary men who gave birth to the greatest experiment in human freedom and what ended up being the greatest success in human flourishing that we've ever had. I mean, I want to teach the founders as giving out foundational principles that were improperly practiced like the all men are created equal that phrase is the almost like a fundamental mission statement of the country and we just continue to apply it to more people over time but the idea was a good idea that's what i would i would want said of them but they talked about them as as complicated there was also this i noticed every one of them taught sally hemmings as a fact that it is a fact that Thomas Jefferson had sex with this teenage slave and had kids with her. Guys, that's not a fact. If you think it's a fact, you were mistaught history. Their best, their evidence is DNA at best and tracing DNA lines and finding definitely someone in the Jefferson family of whom there were close to a dozen on his on his property, on his estate, somebody had had sex with that, that that girl, that teenage girl. Somebody with the same DNA as Jefferson. He had brothers that lived there. And the DNA is diluted enough that we have, yes, someone in the Jefferson line. But I had no idea that American history books and, and American history teachers, they just straight say it. Jefferson had sex with a teenage slave, fathered children with her. And if, by the way, if you think that's true, we don't know that that's true. And it's slanderous to look back in history and just say it of somebody without actually having the ability to prove it. Right, so that's one, how they talked about the founders. Two, the way they talked about the Civil War. I, the first guy that came on the screen, I was so encouraged because <laughs> he said, well, I teach my, my students that there were three causes of the Civil War. I was like, oh, that's cool, man. Good. Multi-factor analysis. That's what kids need to know. It was a very complicated thing. And then he said... Yeah, and the three, the, re, the three reasons I say were reason number one is slavery, reason number two is slavery, and reason number three is slavery. And they keep on bringing voice after voice, and they teach the Civil War was about slavery and absolutely nothing else. 
And so I'm trying to give you both what's happening in history and then give you the alternative so that you might even in your own household, if you have teenagers or you're about to have teenagers or eventually you will in the public school system or grandparents that you ask your kids, hey, what do you know about the founders and Jefferson and Washington? Have you, have you thought about it this way? I'm trying to give you tools to counteract what they're getting in history when it's wrong. So quickly on the Civil War. I can't stand the other side of that debate because I am, by the way, he's kind of an historian. I, I look up here at my shelf and I have my certificate of ordination uh, from when I was ordained into ministry. And I also have my college degree. I'm supposed to be a history guy. The folks that say, should have war one about slavery, it's about state rights. Well, uh, gosh. It's the same thing if, if someone would get up in front of class and say, the Civil War was about one thing. One, states' rights. Two, states' rights. Three, states' rights. Oh, right. Gosh, can anybody have a more interesting worldview than the myopia of slavery or states' rights? Or myopia? I forgot how to say that word. I'm saying it's broad. It's complicated. Certainly, it was about slavery. Unquestionably. I've to- told you this many times. If it weren't, the Confederates wouldn't have put it in their constitution. They wrote a constitution and they put slavery in it to protect it. Of course they were protecting slavery. And they were protecting slavery in part because of their horrific racist bias towards an ethnic group, their, their ethnic bias, their ethnic prejudice. And of course that was economic. You know, I, I wish we wouldn't paint the North as some kind of, some kind of a moral high ground here. They were benefiting just as much as we were for, in, in the South. You know, right now, the entire country, the United States, the Western world benefits from something akin to slave labor in China and the Philippines and throughout Asia and Africa. We get to, we get to benefit from people making less than a dollar a day putting together a lot of our clothes and electronics. If that makes you uncomfortable, I think it probably should. It makes me uncomfortable the more and more I think about it, how my very easy life is in some ways provided by people doing a lot of work in terrible conditions for very little money. And the North was doing that at the time. They were very much enjoying the very low-cost food and very low-cost, well, not textiles because we didn't have textiles yet, but the very low-cost clothes and things they were getting from us. They loved that. And they they were enjoying the fruits of slave labor as well. But that's part of what motivated the South. It was certainly to preserve slavery as a ethnic bias against against a people group, but also their economic interests. And then also, it is important to say, one, if, if you go to the primary materials, the pamphlets being shared, the debates being had, the idea of states' rights, a Tenth Amendment, was a major talking point. The idea here being, whatever it's about, what, what's, what's terrible is it ended up being about slavery. But whatever the issue, is a state permitted to leave? Or does the federal government own the states? And, of course, what should be is states can leave. This is how it works. The states created the federal government. Whatever the creation is, is always subject to the creator. We are subject to God. He's above us because he created us. You are the sovereign over your small children and a little bit less sovereignty over time. You are authority over your children because you created them. That's something you would say to them. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. You are the sovereign over the music you write, the painting you paint. You are, if you're the creator, you own it. Well, the states created the federal government. 13 of them got together, created this monster called the federal government. 
and then we admitted a bunch of other states along the way. The states created it and therefore get to leave if they want to. The problem is the ones that wanted to, in part, wanted to leave because they wanted to enslave other humans. It's one of those uncomfortable things. I'm a big states' rights guy. And unfortunately, my mascot of people that are pro-states' rights, also slave owners. That's not fun. Or supported slave owning. So uh, that's what I wish we would teach. And I hope, I hope you'll teach about, uh, about s- slavery and the Civil War. I'd also like to add some context to slavery in this way. I, I am, I've noticed this in the Western world, especially in America. Let's go the last five or six years. We, for some reason, want to flagellate, punish ourselves as uniquely evil when it comes to slavery. And I think kids need to know both things are true. The United States of America practiced the egregious sin of slavery, and we hold, because of it, a a, a scar. And, that conjunction's important, not but, and... The United States practiced that egregious sin in a world where it was already created. It seems to get taught that the United States created slavery. It was our, it was our doing. The world had never thought of it before. And the United States created it and did it. I, I think it's got to teach kids both. Your country did a bad thing. You're not uniquely evil. Even, I mean, the, the slavery of the United States added the ethnic part. It added the, the ethnic bias and denigration of an entire ethnicity of people. But that's also not unique in history. So just as a historian, that's what I want kids to know. Hey, your country did a horrific, terrible thing. The effects thereof still are still with us today. And, no, so did everybody else. It's the thing I don't understand about American liberalism seems to uniquely despise the United States of America and think, think some other places are pretty cool in Latin American Europe. And when you point out these, you know, hey, why do you hate the United States so much? They'll name things that are true of those countries they love. You must hate every country, but they'd be unwilling to hate every country. And that's one of the reasons to teach that is so that you don't, you don't come out of the education system with a bunch of America haters. You let them know. The sins of America are not unique. They're all over the world. Okay, so uh, i got to find where I was in my notes. So that's what they're teaching on Civil War and Slavery, the Founders. Actually, what I think they're teaching, what I could tell, they're teaching it pretty well. The Reconstruction Period. So post-Civil War, the federal government was forcing a lot of stuff on the southern states. And a lot of what they forced was responded to by the South with a lot of uh, resistance. And there ended up being a a bit of a detente, an an agreement that allowed the South to handle a lot of their own stuff. And uh, the, the federal government staying out. And in that period of time, you had all of the actions, or almost all of the actions of racism, racism, let's go with imbued, racism-inspired policy, this is when it, it it causes all of our, the problems that we still have today. And that's largely what they, uh, that's, that's largely what they said, was the, 
almost I feel like the way they taught it can be the bridge between the people who are obsessed with systemic racism as an idea that our culture right now, every institution, everywhere, every blade of grass, everything is racist. That to bridge through that is, guys, the what you're talking about absolutely existed through, uh, I mean, I, I want to teach kids, yeah, we gave reading tests to black people after specifically, in, in the South at least, after specifically trying to make sure they couldn't read. Because they wanted to vote, and so we made up reading tests. We made up competency tests to pass, to vote, and then went through the very specific effort of making sure that they would never know how to do it. Oh, and by the way, the person who got to decide if the person passed the competency test was not an answer key. There was not a, a set of answers sitting on a board somewhere, some objective standard. No, just some guy at the polling station could say, no, I think you got this one wrong for this arbitrary reason and you don't get to vote. It's the stuff that we've talked about with redlining and housing. It's the discrimination on, uh, on jobs. This, the situation we're in right now with racial disparity is linked, to the, is linked to the past. And I think when we try to obsess over and make it a, an animal of the, of the now, we're going to miss the actual solution. Because what actually happened is in Reconstruction, we did a bunch of stuff to make sure that black people and black families could never accumulate wealth. And so now we have a disproportion, a group disproportionately poor. Black Americans are dis, disproportionately have less wealth because of the policies, the government-instituted policies. It's important, too. Governments did it. For all the folks who love government, governments made those policies that makes black Americans more likely to have less wealth than white Americans, and that's actually what we're suffering from today, I would say primarily. Certainly, there's family disintegration that's an issue, there is some modern-day discrimination, but the primary issue is this. When you are poor throughout human history, when you have less wealth, you're sicker, you're more likely to commit crimes, you're more likely to be the victim of crime, you're more likely to uh, interact with law enforcement, you're more likely to be arrested, you're more likely to be in prison, you're more, like, more likely to have less education. Poverty is the driver of all the worst things in the world. And so poverty now needs to be the thing we most tackle. And right now we're trying to tackle racism that isn't actually causing the problem right now. The ca causing the problems right now is poverty. And the poverty is caused by old racism. And so teaching Reconstruction as the old racist policies that's, caused, that's causing the problems that we have right now, totally on board with teaching it that way. But they don't, and they seem to be teaching it that way. And I, again, I think it can be that bridge. Like, hey, you guys that are seeing systemic racism, I know what you're talking about. It was back there, and it caused all the problems you're seeing right now. So let's, let's work on the poverty problem that we have right now, celebrate the progress we've made in, uh, in, in diminishing discrimination based on ethnicity, and then certainly calling it out where it still exists. All right, so that's what I saw from the New York Times and how... American English history teachers, sorry, American history teachers are teaching critical race theory and history. I hope that information can help you supplement that if your kids are in public school history uh, or your grandkids are, and you can give them some, some balance on those things. Now, they also asked this question, what is education for? And they had a bunch of guest editorials and guest writers. I want to come back from this break and answer that myself. What's it for? Why do we do it? Why as a country have we decided to come together and make sure everyone gets an education? 
I'll do that, and hopefully a lot more, when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. What is education for? Why do we spend so much money on it and have all largely agreed this is very few people that disagree with the idea that governments of some level should be involved in the intellectual formation of our kids. It's been a fundamental feature of the United States for its entire inception. It wasn't public education at first, but the idea of sending your kid to school for around 12 years, for periods of time, it's just been a really assumed part of our culture and recently, the New York Times asked, what's it for? What's the point of education? A lot of folks, experts wrote in to give their take, and I read a lot of theirs. I want to give you mine. And and in that way, maybe if you have kids that are about to start school or in school, get you to think about what the point of education is and how what, what, what decisions you might make about the education of your kids. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. You can find me on all the social medias at Corey Truax. Or you can email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I came up with four things, four things that education is for. And if it starts to do other things besides these, it's outside of its purview, and we need to put it back in its purview. So let me give you the four. One is intellectual formation and skills. We want, we want our education system to do that. Help us teach our kids how to problem solve and how to think, not always what to think, and often don't tell them what to think, but set up problems for them so they can work out the intellectual muscle of how to go about solving that problem. That looks like math. That looks like the fundamental parts of solving for X as the, as the mind develops well enough for it. It's about pattern recognition. It's about cognition, computation. These are the skills of the mind. Just running the drills. Often that's what elementary level education is. The same way that you run a drill in sports because you want your body to do the same thing with more efficiency or more speed. You just do the same thing over and over again, pushing that level. That's what flashcards are. That's what a times table is. That's what translation of other languages is that when you put up the... You put up one word and on the other side is the flashcard, the, the root verb in Spanish. You're getting your brain to get better at processing things, computing things, your cognition level being high. So one of the things we want skills to do is just intellectual formation and skills. Teach us how to go about the process of thinking and processing things. But then second is fundamental information. Yeah, we need you to teach our kids. We don't need you to. But we want education as a process Teach us fundamental things. Teach us about the water cycle and where all of our, our water comes from. Teach us uh, some fundamental things about the, the food chain, about, about nutrition, uh, how, to, how to tell time, how to measure things, some fundamental skills, some, some history, where, where our people group come from. What about the other people groups around the world and how we interact with them? Fundamental information that we just need to know about the planet. Those things. Uh, that we have a planet, that there are, I guess it used to be nine in the solar system, but we excluded Pluto now. So eight in the solar system, that we rotate around the sun. These are, you, you can know the things I'm talking about here. Just fundamental stuff and how to so- problem solve. We want intellectual formation 
out of our schools. And where schools stop doing that and do other things, they're getting out of their purview. We need to rein them back in. So one is intellectual formation and skills. Number two is social cohesion. One of the key things about schools is they are a place for everyone. Even before public schools, there were methods whereby almost everybody could get some kind of education. And when we did make public education a thing, it became a place of social cohesion. I noticed that with the little town I'm in in Easley, there was some, uh, when I moved to it, there was some obvious pride. I go, I go to these schools, and there was not antipathy, but other healthy pride for those that went to Pickens High School or Daniel High School and others in the county. I've, you notice that across small-town America everywhere. There's some school spirit and school pride, even in, in metropolitan areas. There was social cohesion. And that means in this institution, we have different ethnicities. We have the rich. We have the middle class. We have the poor. We have the athletes. We have the, the musicians. We have the theater geeks and the marching band geeks. We have everybody's there. We, that, that's part of a school. It's social cohesion that the entire community is represented and getting along and moving forward on a, a unified purpose. So that also the, so we can have similar and shared experiences. It is important that grandkids can talk to grandparents about having gone to the same school or a school like it, that over time you notice as much as technology and things change, human experiences often don't. Bullying is bullying, whether it was digital or back in the day when it was physical. Uh, being betrayed or gossiped about is different now because it happens through DMs and it can spread faster because of the internet, but those things happen to, to, kid, to your grandparents and to your parents. It's important to have similar experiences to draw upon, and schools do that. It creates social cohesion amongst generations, amongst ethnic groups, amongst income groups. They're, they're helpful in that way. Second on social cohesion, what they used to do really well was provide unifying storytelling. So they were a place for everyone, and then through the history class to the civics class, they would tell the same story. Here's where we come from. Here's our founding ideas. Here's our values. This is where we are falling apart on social cohesion because in the last, let's go with 30, 40, 50 years, different parts of our story are now being told differently. Instead of, a, I think, a more a full telling of the story, we're, st- we're starting to get to that spot where there's, a folk, there's folks that just want to teach. America's evil. At its core, there's nothing good or admirable about it. It's a terrible place shot through. Its DNA is racist, sexist, bigot, homophobery. I'm just kidding. Uh, Sexism, racism, bigotry, and homophobia. This is what it's based on. The the core values of the country are those where we used to tell the story, hey guys, our core values are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and uh, the protection of uh, private property, all, all people are created equal, that our rights come from our creator, uh, that we are a people of adventure, that we are a people of enterprise and entrepreneurship. These are the values we have. Uh, and that if you work hard, you can get ahead. These are our values. Uh, then it, it led to some social cohesion. So we're falling apart there on that one, and I don't know how to fix that, but th- that's what it's supposed to be for. It's supposed to be for intellectual formation and skills. It's supposed to be for social cohesion. And then finally, importantly, the more practical, it's supposed to be for economic development. The uh, b- bottom line is, uh, the more educated a society is, 
the more it's likely to invent stuff. We we have been, or it's not going well right now, but historically we've been one of the more educated people groups. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that the Industrial Revolution first set off here. The fact that we invented the cotton gin is not a surprise. We were a very educated people. The fact that we created the internal combustion engine, the fact that we created air conditioning, that a lot of modern medicine came through us, it's certainly our culture that we're an enterprising and entrepreneurial people, that we believe in uh, our private property, including our intellectual property, so you can profit off of it. This is part of why we did that, but we're, we're an educated people, so we're more likely to create stuff. That's, that's good for humanity. That's, bring, that's, that's actually a biblical value, that we're bringing the creation under subjection. This, this is part of why we want to have an education system is for economic development, that we might have the people equipped with the abilities to make the inventions and create new things. And then it's also the key to, econo- key to economic mobility. I'll, I'll take me for, a, for example. The fact that I went and got a four-year college degree and was able to just go right out of college into a pretty decent job at, at another, actually at a college, and then parlay that into another position somewhere else. And it's, I mean, unless the Lord does something and I can eventually replace my income with, with ministry or with, with media or both, I'll probably do it my whole life. And I think, I think, all of, I, I, I'm almost positive, all of my dad's kids will have better financial situations as, as long as none of us go, go stupid and squander it and start acting moronic with the wealth God's given us um, and, and income, an income-making ability God's given us. We're all going to do better than our parents and I think set up our kids, or for me, nieces and nephews, to do better than we did. And part of that, I mean, I, I think my parents' parents, so largely mill village people, People living in in the mill, in the mill houses uh, around around the textile mills that all fell apart, that somehow their generation did better, and then this generation is going to do better. It's part of economic mobility. I mean, I, I think of me me and my soon to be wife don't come from a lot of means, and our and our backgrounds, and we're going to do fine. And on the the nieces and nephews on her side and my side, I think they're they're going to do even better in a large part because we educate, we educate, we educate. And we emphasize it. So there's economic mobility to it as well. So what's the point of education, as the New York Times asks? Well, we want you to teach intellectual formation, fundamental skills, provide a place of social cohesion. Right now you're failing at that. It would be great to have schools that provided social cohesion and then do economic development. Now, you might have remembered at the top I said there's four reasons. There used to be four reasons for education. We have become such a divided people one of them has to be eliminated right now until we find some other solution, at least in public education. The last reason for education, I actually would have put as number one, the number one reason we used to have education would be for moral formation. We are bringing our kids together, partnering to teach the morality that we all share, that we don't steal from each other, that we don't lie about each other, we don't hurt each other. That we have a an affection for the place that we're from so that we work hard to support it. That when we are available, we support ourselves and don't count on others to take care of us. That we're not lazy. That we pull our own weight. 
that we pay our taxes, that we pay our own bills, that we, we are generous to each other. We share from our plenty. The moral foundation often happened at school. What we find now is there, there is a group of people that want to use our schools as moral formation. But they are using it to teach the best thing you can be is a victim. And everybody but white Christian males have been historic victims. And they are the bad guys. The rest of you are the good guys. And there is some revenge to exact. There is an oppression that you will never overcome because of your ethnicity or your gender or your minority status as a sexuality. They want to use the schools to teach kids about all things sexual before they're age appropriate and to teach them sexual ethics and values that don't agree with a giant chunk of Americans' values on sex and sexuality. They want to teach different values about things on, on ethnicity and what the government's supposed to do versus what human what people are supposed to do and citizens. I think what's gotten our problem in, in the education system is a, a, a group of secular leftists have taken over hegemonic control of the institutions to teach their morality, their backward and terrible bad morality, and as a consequence, they have weakened our efforts and the time we spend on teaching intellectual formation and social cohesion and doing economic development because the most important thing has become teach them our morals. This is what happens when... uh, Ultimately, this is what happened when religion takes over. There used to be a time where we taught Christian principles to our kids in the schools. Well, a new religion has taken over. And its intent on teaching its values and religion to our kids has caused them to diminish the quality of education we're getting on the things it's actually supposed to do. I'm out of time. I'll save a lot of this for next week. I had a lot more I wanted to tell you. I'll come back and do more of that next week on the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with another new, another new edition. Until then, peace and love.